three, two, and one. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Good evening, wherever and whenever you're listening to this episode of the Voices of Value podcast. Thank you for coming back. And look, I tell y'all every single Friday, and if you listen to the first episode with our guy that's on the screen right now, if, if, if you know, you know, if you don't know, you about to know, but you know, I say every single Friday, I'm coming back with a fire guest and I've yet to lie. Here we are one year, almost one year later on the date, actually. So um, one year ago, I spoke to the guest that we're about to reintroduce. Um, we had a dope conversation about his life story, um, how he transitioned from you know, what I see as an awesome job, and he probably saw as an awesome job into an even more awesome job and 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 how scary that might have been, but taking that risk and uh, where it brought him at that day. And now here we are a year later to see how the process has been going. So my guy, introduce yourself to those who don't know you. Say what's up to the people and good morning, my brother. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I am Faraz Himani. That is crazy. I didn't realize we're about one year from the date the first time I did this. And by the way, this is the first podcast I ever did. So it's, it's always a special place in my heart to come do this one. And yeah, everyone, it's uh, it's been awesome. It's been a wild ride for the last one year. The first time I talked here to Collis, I was just basically starting. I was a baby in the world of commercial real estate and being an entrepreneur and being out on my own. And one year in, I got a lot more gray hairs to show for it. A lot more war stories to tell. So I'm excited to to share what I have to say. I love that, man. We appreciate you. And and again, like I kind of mentioned before um, we started, we're just going to do a quick touch on your early life. So tell the people where you're coming from, um, share a little bit about your heritage and maybe some of your hobbies or interests outside of real estate and entrepreneurship. Absolutely, man. So I am born and raised here in Houston, Texas. I've been in Texas my whole life. I got no plans of leaving Texas. It is the best place on earth. Uh, my family and my background, we are Pakistani. My father was first generation to come here, like a lot of Pakistani immigrants are. Uh, you know, a lot of people that are my age are the first ones here born in America. And it inspires a lot of things in your life to see your father, your parents be first generation immigrants. That's the cool thing. I love one of the, one of the million reasons I love the city of Houston is we have a lot of first generation immigrants here. And you learn a lot about what it means to hustle and what it means to just make something out of nothing by just watching that generation, including my own father, who just like a lot of other immigrant stories came here with $500 in his pocket, couldn't speak English, but still had to take college English literature and all of these different things and deliver pizzas till 3am and then go to school at 7am and uh it makes a big it has a big impact on who i am and and you know the way i approach things today and it's awesome outside of outside of work man life's been good in the last year i'm married we had our first kid two months ago so yeah it's crazy so if you talk about what i do besides work it's nothing it's kid work work kid kid work and i wouldn't have it any other <laughs> awesome I love that, man. Well, first off, congratulations. I believe I was able to shoot you a text to say congratulations. But if I didn't, congratulations again. Um, my guy, that's a special moment. And on top of, you know, really getting started in in the business of commercial real estate just a little bit over a year ago. Um, I know you've kind of been dabbling in the investor space with Pebble Ridge longer than that. But, um, you know, phew, that all the success you've been having this year, all the hustle, the stress on top of having a kid getting married, that's a lot of special things. And so congratulations on all of that. I want to I want to double back to Houston real quick. So two things about Houston. Number one, um, did you watch that uh, Netflix show uh, with uh, I forgot his name? He's, it was a really oh, good. Well, yeah, yeah. Did you watch yeah. it? Of course I watched it, man. I love All that right. show. I want to yeah. hear your feelings on the show. How how well did it do in terms of the replication of the culture of Houston and hip-hop culture? Um, and then also, you know, the integration of immigrant stories into that show. They did a great job there. So just in general, yeah. touch on that. Why do you like the show? How does it portray Houston? Um, and yeah. Absolutely. Well, first of all, the show is phenomenal. Even if you don't know a thing about Houston, you just want to watch something that's funny and it's a phenomenal show. My guy, Mo Amr, who is a Palestinian-American, uh, proud Houstonian. He's got his stand-up specials on Netflix and all of that. Just a hilarious, all-around funny guy and a great guy, too. I've actually had the pleasure to, you know, actually chop it up with him. And uh, so, phenomenal show. But in terms of portrayal of Houston, it's dead on. I mean, there is no 
dramatization. I mean, it, every spot that you see him go to in the show, every hookah bar or strip club or everything is a real spot here in Houston. He's got actual like Houston legends making cameo appearances in the show. Paul Wall, uh, even freaking some restaurant owners of like these hole in the wall Arab restaurants make little appearances. So it is it is a spot on portrayal and it's absolutely a spot on portrayal of the immigrant story. The biggest challenge that they should you know show in that in that whole uh, series is the inability for them to get very easily legalized in this country and get refugee status or asylum status. And I personally know a lot of families that struggle with that. And it is it is a, it is a crazy thing, you know, not to get too far off topic, but a lot of people come to this country. They're not given a guidebook on what to do, what forms to fill out, when to go to court and all of that. I mean, you're just barely learning how to speak English in a lot of cases. And until you get all of that stuff done, you can't get a job, you can't work legally. And a lot of times it feels like it is just a maze that makes makes life incredibly, incredibly hard on people. And I see especially in all over the country, I know, but especially in Houston, I see so many immigrant families go through that struggle. So it was it was absolutely a dead on portrayal of the challenges a lot of people face. The the lawyers in the show and like that that used to crack me up with the lawyers in the show. But like on a half serious, half not serious note, I wonder how many Twitter guys there are on Twitter that are about to like pop up and be like the niche real estate. I mean, the niche lawyer guy for immigrants and they're like an immigrant themselves. And like they're just like immigrant yeah. lawyer on Twitter. I'm sure there's somebody already yeah. doing it, posting a lot of content. But that's what popped in my head while while you were sharing that. No, that's a great idea. You know, I have a buddy that's a lawyer and we talk a lot about like how he can be, you know, have a social media presence going. And to long story short, the main issue we run into is like a lot of lawyer things are, are kind of boring. Like it's not entertaining to hear a TikTok on LLCs or, or you know, three tax regulations around XYZ. But immigration law has such a profound like human impact. You know what I mean? Because it is really the story of people and their struggles and their achievements and all of these things. And it's, it's a foundation of what this country is built on. So that's, man, that's a phenomenal idea. Someone's really got to do it just from a human interest point of view. That would be phenomenal content, I think. Absolutely. And last thing about Houston, my brother. So if you were to try to sell the city of Houston to a 25 year old, who's looking for a new place to move in the United States of America, why should somebody move to Houston, especially like a young person who's looking towards starting a family and entrepreneurship and in that area in general? Why would you uh, what would you sell? You want to pay seven hundred dollars for rent. You want to one day own a house and pay maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars for that house while still living in a top five city and population in the country with tons of Fortune 50 companies and probably have the best food in the whole country maybe other than new york i've never been to new york i've just i've just heard it's good it's it's all around and, and man on top of it uh the people here are phenomenal there's real true southern hospitality here nobody is in anybody's face there is no a lot of anger or meanness among people here and uh, people just tend to get along but i mean just from a from a cost of living and you're still in a big city and you have all the opportunities somebody has in a big city but you can still achieve a lot of those American dream, home ownership, and all of those things. There's there's no city that you can do that in that's a top 10 city other than Houston, in my opinion. And I'm sure this is annoying to hear, but what would someone have to do to be able to avoid the hurricanes in their apartment flooding? Like what part of the city should they live in or what area of town should they like go to to do their best to avoid that? Oh, that's a good question, Ben. Honestly, I, I don't know if anywhere is safe anymore. But, uh, but yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, hurricanes every every few years you have a real real bad one. But I don't know. Let me ask you this, because you know, I first of all, I get super defensive about Houston. My wife is not from Houston, so she always be like, "Why you want to live in this like freaking rat trap hurricane city and all of that?" And um, I think every city's got to have some weather issue, right? Whether it's tornadoes or blizzards or earthquakes or I don't know. You know what I mean? Everyone's got their thing. So <laughs> I feel you. I think it's like a 50 50 thing. Like, and it all might depend on how the media portrays or somebody's association with that city in terms of maybe never being there, never living there and only seeing it on TV. So like when I hear Houston, I hear two things come to mind. Number one, hip hop culture, for sure. That's the first thing that comes in. But number two is hurricanes. So like that's all I think of when I think of Houston. When I think of California, yeah, I think of earthquakes. But how often is there an earthquake as like massive and terrible as the one that just happened in Turkey? Rest in peace to everyone mm -hmm. over there. But 
like it's not that often that something that chaotic happens. Like maybe the last one was San Francisco, like in the eighties or something, or like in Missouri, I live in Kansas city. We're in the middle of tornado alley. Do we get a shit ton of tornado warnings? Yeah. But how many actually touch down and kill lots of people? Not that many, like over the years, you know? So it's like, I don't know. It's conflicting, but that's neither here nor there. Just a fun topic to touch on really quick. So let's transition, man. February 25th, 2022. I interview you for the voices of value podcast. We talked about, Pebble Ridge Capital. Why don't you reintroduce Pebble Ridge Capital to the audience for those who forgot or those who need a re, uh, an introduction? What is, what do you guys do? Who do you service? Um, and yeah, let's, let's start there. Absolutely, man. So I'll give a two second background about how I got into Pebble Ridge to explain what, what Pebble Ridge is and why I feel it's such a valuable platform today. Um, when I was 22, I was lucky enough to have a manager at my tech sales job that introduced me to real estate investing. I got some bonuses and sales commissions and for I'll go buy your rental property. I, I never knew that was something that could be achievable in my life, but he helped guide me through it. You know, one thing led to another. I bought another one. I bought another one. I went to family friends. I said, you guys want to buy property in Austin, Texas? That's where I was living at the time. And, you know, we ended up buying a good amount of residential property. Um, fast forward a couple of years, the market does really, really well, you know, house prices go up, especially in Austin, Texas, they go through the roof. So we start selling some properties and myself and the people that have invested with me are now sitting on, you know, a decent amount of cash. And so what do we do next with that money? We don't want to put it back into houses because, you know, everybody is doing that house prices are through the roof at that time in Austin, Texas, you know, a house hits the market, it gets 15 offers, 14 of them are investors from California. And maybe one of them is a local Austin resident. So it was too hot. We didn't want to just make a bet or a guess that, yeah, these prices will keep going up. So our question and what Pebble Ridge came to solve was, where can we find real estate investments where we, the operators, the owners, have a lot of control over the value of the property? And it's not just dependent on what is the market. Hey, if the market goes up, then we win. If the market goes down, then we lose. We didn't like that those odds. Where, where can we stack the deck in our favor and create these investments where, you know, it's like whatever we put in is what we get and we have very, very low risk. So we did that. We studied the market. We found a few asset types. And really in the last year, Pebble Ridge has become a platform where we partner with investors, bring them in, and we invest in commercial real estate all over the country, specifically self-storage facilities. I can go hold 30 minutes, which I'm not going to do to you about why self-storage facilities, but to, but to give you a short answer, it's one of those really, really amazing asset classes where all of the value, it's, it's, it's like a small business, right? Like you don't really think of a renting a house as a small business. At home, you wouldn't really think of it as a small business, right? But a storage facility in many ways is a small business. That's where our customers look at us as, you know, we have to do marketing, we have to do pricing changes, and we have to do collections, and we have to have customer service seven days a week, um, you know, all sorts of different things that we have going on, processes around maintenance. And if you can run that small business really, really, really well, whether the market is up or the market is down, if you're a phenomenal operator, you can find a way to make a lot of good money in that space. And that is why we set on that asset class. We have a lot of different processes for how we pick our investments, how we run them, how we manage them that make us really, really unique. And in many ways, I think we are one of the most unique people in the world of self-storage today. And that's what we do. I love that. That was a great breakdown. And just a quick Quick plug um, for anybody who's listening right now and has to jump out of the car to go into work, um, but they have some time to do some research on their computer. What are one to three resources somebody should tap into to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, the self self storage industry? And if they're interested in real estate investing in real estate, where should they go to 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 look, or who's somebody they should tap into to to listen to or to read from? Absolutely. So first, when they're done listening to this podcast, they can go over to the next podcast. Uh, but there's a guy, AJ Osborne, AJ Osborne. He is an OG in the world of self-storage. He has a pretty phenomenal podcast where he talks a lot about why he got into self-storage and the way he operates and runs things. In fact, he also has a book. It's an audio book and a, and a regular book as well. That is the best introduction to self-storage you can get. Outside of that, Go to Twitter, type in the word self-storage. You you know a lot of the guys on there, Nick Huber, uh, even myself, some others who have some decent followings are on there talking about the business all the time. You know, what are we doing in the business? Why do we, how do we create value in that business? You can check out my own Twitter, my LinkedIn, social media is, I learned 80% of what I know about self-storage from Twitter. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't know anybody that did self-storage. I literally learned the whole playbook from Twitter and I went and executed it. And now we're sitting at about 10 facilities across the country. Fuck yeah. I love it. I love it. And like you just mentioned there, 10 facilities across the country. 
you know, there's been some significant milestones inside of Pebble Ridge this year. So um, would you mind sharing some of the significant milestones from the past year um, that, that you've achieved since our last interview and how some of these milestones have either positively impacted your business or I don't want to say negatively, but maybe added some uh, more stress hairs to your face or something? <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. man. the last time we talked, I'm pretty sure I'd had one storage facility and we had one other commercial property as well. Since that time, we bought nine more. Uh, we have a couple more that we're getting ready to buy here in the next couple of months as well. But honestly, the thing I'm most proud of and what we've achieved in that last year, the last time I talked, I believe it was just me. And I had a, you know one other person that was helping me at the time. And that was our team. Today, we have nine employees, half of them overseas, half of them here in the US. And the thing that makes me the most proud of what we accomplished is how that team has grown, what that team has accomplished, what they executed. To just put it into context, the deal we're getting ready to buy right now, the storage facility we're getting ready to buy. I was not involved in almost any part of the process. I was not the one that found the deal. I was not the one that talked to the owner. I was not the one that negotiated the price. I was not the one that negotiated the contract details. I was not the one to go get the debt and get the loan on it. My team handled all of it. Uh, and I'm so freaking proud. And honestly, that that was the best moment of the whole year to see how they came together and executed um, in fact, when I had my kid back in late November, early December, um, I didn't even have to tell them direction or, Hey, I'm out. They just stepped up. They said, Faraz, you, you got your kid. We know what, you know, we know what you're supposed to be taking care of. We'll take care of it. That has been the most phenomenal thing for me. That's really changed the way I look at entrepreneurship and business. And it's not so, I mean, obviously you being a hard worker and you being intelligent and you knowing what to do is obviously an important thing, especially in the early days. But at a certain point you want to hit your goals. It really starts becoming about how can you just be the best person to empower other people? How can you make them feel confident in their abilities? How can you give the top performers room to be top performers and stay out of their way as needed? That is really start what's, you know, it's really changed my views on entrepreneurship. Absolutely. In that same light, you know, what do you think are some key principles that you've learned about leadership in this process or maybe some, you know, just just anything you've learned or have been forced to learn to be able to become a good leader and build a team that can go out there and do that, that can go out there and execute without you having to be on their back every single day. And, you know, how important has that been, you know, since having a kid and um, just getting deeper into the business, acquiring more properties, having more, you know more responsibilities let's just say yeah. how important has leadership and building a tight tight crew around you been oh it's everything it's everything i mean as smart as i think i am in my head or as hard of a worker i think i am in my head, i can't i couldn't be where i'm at today if it wasn't for the team no 100 percent. it's it is everything especially in this phase of life i'm in where i definitely don't want to be in the office and you know come home and my kid's already asleep and i missed him like you know that's not a life i want to live so then leadership is 100% everything and empowering others is everything. And then the biggest things I've learned, you know, you want to hire the right type of people. One thing I learned, you know, the people we hire in our business don't come into this. They don't know anything about real estate when we hire them. That's not what we look for when we hire. Not that do you know the business? Do you know real estate? Do you know self-storage? Do you know, you know, financial analysis? We look for things that I, I can teach all of that stuff. In fact, a lot of people are excited about working with us because they get an opportunity to learn that stuff. We look for the people that are going to be self-starters. Uh, everyone in my company, the one thing I'm the most proud of that I can say with my chest is the biggest skill everyone has is they don't need to be told what to do. When something needs to get done, they just they just know it and they go do it. Or if they see there's a better way to do things, they just go ahead and do it. And that's not something I can teach them how to do. That's just something that you are, is in your character. That's the type of people we hire. Once we bring them in, our goal, my goal personally, what I've learned about being a good leader, make them confident. You know, you want to be their cheerleader. You want to be their advocate. You want to make them think that they can they can knock everything down in the world. And that's really what I spend a lot of my time doing, putting confidence behind them, making everyone feel appreciated and then just just getting out of their way, not micromanaging. A lot of times. And I know a lot of people go through the struggle when you bring somebody new in and you ask them to do something for the first time, they're going to go and you're going to watch them and they're going to be doing it in all the ways that you wouldn't want to done and making mistakes. And there's this tendency you want to be like all right move out of the way move out of the way i got it i got it i'll fix it and you have to train yourself like nope that's it'll help me in the short term but long run sit down teach them don't even just to ask them questions probe them get them to get it done so a lot of things i've had to reorient myself around but because of those things our business is where it is today and it's and it's going to be probably two to three x the size in about a year all because of the focus on leadership and culture that we have here i love it i love it so i want to <clears throat> ask you, you know, kind of just doubling back to your your beginnings, you know, from W-2 employee to full-time real estate investor over the past few short years, 
what has been the, the the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome, whether it's mentally or whether it's, you know, just physical with work or whether it's a uh, communication style, what, what like has been the, the, the biggest wall that you've just had to keep punching through to finally get through and, and how, how did you do that? That is a good question. I think the toughest thing sometimes about going out and being your own boss, quote unquote, or starting your business, no matter how motivated you are, there's just something to be said about the fact that what, you know, there's, there's, when you're working a W2 job, there's accountability from your manager, from your team, from your directors and from the metrics that they put on you and all of these different things. But when you start your own business there, you are the only person holding yourself accountable. And, you know, I don't have to tell you this, you already know it. you know, motivation is something that you have one day and maybe one day you wake up and you don't have it. You know what I mean? And it comes and it goes and it's, it's not usually something that is just there at the same level, 24, seven, 365. And how, when that motivation is not there, do you still hold yourself accountable uh, is the biggest thing that you have to kind of turn, you know, you have to instill in yourself. You have to have a why. Why did I leave a nice, cushy W-2 job where I just got a steady paycheck? Maybe I was working from home and I was just working two hours a day and watching Netflix the rest of the day. I don't know. You know what I mean? But why did I walk away from that and sign up for something where I'm working 4x the amount of hours for less money for the next couple of years, you know, until we get bigger? Like, why did I do that? And if you don't have a sense of why, a sense of purpose, a vision, a plan that you firmly believe in or, or goals for yourself in the future, you're going to have a hard time keeping yourself motivated. And I know tons of people, and I'm sure you do too, that have these ideas. I'm going to start something on the side. I'm going to start a business. And how many of them fizzle out uh, you know, before they even really make significant progress? And a lot of that just goes back to self-accountability, something that you have to try to retrain your mind once you get into this world. Absolutely. And you've kind of flipped the script of, of that situation from being the employee to now being the employer and trying to just like Google or just like Oracle probably wanted to do is keep as many good people on staff for as long as possible. How do you look at yourself? Like what processes or what relationships or, you know, what what books are you reading to learn about how to keep I guess the, I don't know why I'm trying to use a big word, but I'm gonna try to use it anyways. Um, how do you keep like attrition lower, like making sure people don't leave and, and trying to keep people uh, yeah. you know, staying in the company and happy and satisfied? You know, the great thing about working at a small company, like we are, we're a team of nine people is everyone knows everyone. And the owner of the company is working directly with every employee. And that's not the case when you're at an Oracle or a Google or another fortune 50 or something like that, where there's hundred thousand plus employees. What happens a lot of times at those companies, and I read a report recently, like um, apathy or, or basically it said like employees are more checked out than ever before, whether they're working from home, working in the office or hybrid, they're just so totally checked out. I worked at Oracle and Google for a while and they're phenomenal companies and they've done phenomenal things. And honestly, I build a lot of my business around some of the things I learned there, but I'm going to be quite honest with you. Um, because it's such a hierarchy and such a big business and you're so many levels removed from the key decision makers of the company. Uh, it is so easy to just phone it in, check out, um, you know, do a couple hours of work, call it a day, you know, just make a slide deck, throw your name on it. And that counts as, oh yeah, I did something great for the company here. This is awesome. And the, honestly, in my opinion, the best, most ambitious workers develop a sense of apathy to that because at a certain point they realize like, I'm just, this is not meaningful. I'm not push. I am not pushing the needle for this company. I come to work every day. And honestly, sometimes if I missed a whole month, I don't know that the bottom line for Google would change at all. And I saw that not only myself, but a lot of people working at those companies. So the beautiful thing about working at the small company is that stuff doesn't fly. We don't have the budget to just have an extra 2000 employees on payroll that aren't really doing much. You know what I mean? Everybody here has to be contributing. And when they're all locked in, when everyone is talking to everybody and they're bought into a common vision. And on top of that, we all support each other. We all make each other feel very, very appreciated for that work. We all give each other a ton of confidence. Then every morning you do wake up saying, I go to this job and I make an actual difference here. My ambition and talent is growing. It's developing. and It's actually doing something meaningful. I can see how my work translates to dollars and growth. And you don't always see that at every company. And I think that is that is one of the blessings that I get, you know, work at a small company. And that's how I think people stay locked in and they love it here. They learn every day. And, you know, we, we haven't had any attrition since we started. Mm. So I love what you said, but to challenge that, like, I guess how stand, how sustainable is that, I guess, as a, as a, as a mindset or as an approach, as you continue to get bigger, you know, five, 10 years down the line, you might be 20 X where you're at today. And so obviously the team is going to need to grow in some way or fashion. So 
uh, is that something you're kind of like, I'll just approach that when that day comes? Or are you thinking about that ahead of time of like how to implement systems and 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 culture to like keep people accountable for 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 the work they do and help them feel like they're really involved with the uh, with the function of the entire business continuing to grow? Yeah, 100 percent, man. I have a few answers. First, my cop out answer is going to be, you know, the other thing you always hear about entrepreneurs is, man, everyone is just figuring it out as they go. You know what I mean? So I'm sure we will figure it out as we go, as we continue to grow. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to screw up a lot of things. And we're going to realize, like, oh, that wasn't the right way to do things. Let's do it this way. And we're going to get better. And we're going to adapt to the growth and the challenges that growth give you. But outside of that, um, I talk, I had the I had the pleasure of talking to a guy here in Houston recently. He owns one of the biggest digital marketing agencies in Houston. And he told me, you know, as we grow, the natural thing is like, you know, he's like at a point where I can't talk to every single employee every single day. I don't know what a lot of them are doing on the day to day. So the natural thing and a lot of businesses are moving this way is we want to become more performance and metric based. I want to be able to track hours and what did this employee work on? And, and you know, their marketing agencies, like how many SEO search engine optimization hours did this person put in? How many billable hours on PPC did they have? And that's how I can measure productivity. And he's like, the issue, you think that works and you think that's a way to keep everyone accountable. But then what he noticed, he's like, I see people getting away from the heart of the business now where they are just working to appease the metrics more than they're actually appeasing or, you know, working to create a solid client experience. Like to give you a perfect example, he's like, you know, in the past, before we had all these metrics, a client needed some extra work on some search engine optimization stuff. Maybe they had a 10 hour a month budget, but you know, they were at, they were kind of at the end of their budget. We'd just be like, you know what, we'll just do the work now. We'll take it out of a future month. No big deal because that's the proper client experience. Now with all these metrics in place and this and that, he's like, it kind of takes away the heart and soul of who we are and what the business is. And he's like, I feel like I'm constantly on a pendulum. We want to be more performance metric based so I can always keep an eye on making sure that we didn't just get too bloated and everyone's still productive. And then we find ourselves swinging back like, okay, let's make sure we're not actually losing what we were about and what we set out to do when we started. And it's a constant battle and a pendulum going back and forth on. And that was crazy. I never thought about things that way. And I'm sure that's a problem we're going to face as well. Mm, I love it. I love it. And, you know, you've mentioned the 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 words why and your why and your purpose and things of that nature, you know, not not to not to be a hater, but, you know, self-storage doesn't sound that entertaining, doesn't sound that exciting. Um, you know, so when you think about when you wake up every day, what am I going to work for? Is it just I love building business and I love engaging and interacting with people? Is it I just want to take care of my family? Is it I want to get a bag and dip. Like, is it, is it, I really love self-storage and see how it provides a, a shit ton of value for society. Like what, what's your approach? Like, why are you waking up every day and putting in these hours in a space that a lot of people may not find that exciting? It's a really, really good question. And here's the answer. And I tell it to a lot of people at my own company as well. We are not a self-storage business. That's not our primary business. Our primary business is we are selling a product to investors we are giving them a financial product for them to come put their money in. Self-storage is the mechanism for which we can actually achieve results in that financial product, if that makes sense, right? That is what I look at as our core business. And then when you talk about that, if you look at it from that lens, then my day-to-day, -day, my core business is meeting new investors, helping them you know, achieve their financial goals, providing even some level of financial education about investing in alternative assets and investing in real estate. Uh, you know, growing side by side with them. When, when I win and our project wins, we see they win. When they win in the form of direct deposits to their bank account, that becomes a very exciting atmosphere. And the people and the relationships that you build along the way, uh, you know, as people start to notice the work you're doing, you know, you get, you know, people that are legends in their industry or legends or have done, you know, a lot in their own field of work and become achieve great levels of success and have so much money that they got to go put somewhere. And these are the people that we get to talk and meet with every single day. That to me is incredibly exciting. It's not to say that I don't, I'm not excited by self-storage. I'm an absolute nerd about self-storage. And, you know, like I said, you, if you gave me 30 minutes, I could fill up the whole 30 minutes and I'm not going to do you like that. But I think about our business is primarily first, like our main customer is the investor. And our job is to put together the ultimate and optimal product for them to come put their money into. And when you look at it from that lens, it's incredibly exciting. I'm sure... There is a decent amount of people with some extra capital to be able to invest with Pebble Ridge Capital. But how do you decide whether somebody or do you decide whether somebody's a, a good investor to like bring on, you know, like or yeah. is this person nah, we don't want to do work, we don't want to do work with this person or we don't want to manage this person's money? Like, how do you go about yeah. the 
process of interviewing investors, if that makes sense, or if that's even something that's done. I assume it is something that's done. That is why I asked. Oh, absolutely. It is. Well, first I'll give you the, their SEC does have certain requirements over who is allowed to invest based on a person's net worth or their income, et cetera. And those rules are designed to protect individuals and make sure only the people that can, the SEC is deemed as having the financial acumen to invest are allowed to invest. And that's a whole separate topic. But so there's some of that stuff in place, but then, okay. How do I decide who I like to work with and who I don't like to work with? Because there's absolutely good investors and there are absolutely bad investors. Good investors, people that take a genuine interest and ask a lot of questions about the investment itself. Like why self-storage? You know, how are you actually generating value here? How are you driving revenue? What happens if XYZ happens and you can't hit this? I love the people that dig into questions because one, it gives me a chance to nerd out about self-storage, but I see that somebody actually has a genuine interest in what's happening here. Second thing that I love is, you know, people that can, this whole thing is built on a foundation of trust. Honestly, when I first started in the business, I was a little naive. I used to think if I just put the best deal together, I'm going to attract tons of investors. But really like what, imagine, what are we actually asking someone to do? We're asking someone to give us 50, a hundred, 200, half a million dollars sometimes um, and trust us to go manage that money. You can have the most phenomenal deal on earth and you can have all the numbers, right? This and that, but ultimately what wins these relationships and what, what makes you able to raise that money is a level of trust that you have established. And so that is what the foundation is on. Someone that you feel like is going to have a level of trust in you and you have a level of trust in them, you're going to have how, phenomenal. How do you establish that? How do you establish that? Maybe break down what that looks like when you're trying to build trust or and really what that means to me is just build a genuine relationship. So when you're building a genuine relationship with the investor and they're trying to build a genuine relationship with you, what does that look like? Is that like a coffee meeting a week or is that like, like what, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's just a, yeah. a stupid thing to throw out there, but what does that look like? Oh, it's a phenomenal question, honestly. And I think anyone that wants to get into the space where they have to raise money from investors, whether it's for their startup or this or that, this is a very, very important point because it's not just your best idea that wins. Why do I post so much on social media? It's because that gives me an opportunity to start talking to this investor before me and him even have or her have a relationship and they can start to understand what I'm about. Why do I think about things a certain way? How does he approach his thinking about finance and money and wealth management and self-storage? And it establishes a baseline level of credibility to begin with. They already know a little bit about how I think and who I am and what I am willing to put out to the world and say and be accountable for. And that means a lot. Um, so then the next thing that will happen is there's going to be, you know, we'll meet. And I'll tell you this, typically, if I'm meeting somebody that, for example, came from social media, here's actually interesting stat to speak about trust. If I'm meeting somebody cold for the first time, they see my social media posts and they just message. We don't have any mutual friends or mutual connections, just a cold message. After that first call, the chances that they're going to say, yep, sign me up, I'm giving you money, it's like less than 5%. It's very, very low. What happens then, we add them to an email list, they see our deals come out over time, they see some of our wins, they see our losses. The, the key thing is we are being as transparent as possible. We're not just saying, oh, here's how amazing we are. We're telling them, here's what we did well, here's what we didn't do well. And they see those emails over time. And I think the combination of those things, hey, Faraz is out there putting everything out online, staying in front of the public, and he stands by what he's saying, and I can see how he thinks, and I can see what actually happens in his business. He's not hiding anything, starts to establish a level of trust. To give you that counter stat, if I had no mutual relationship with a person, my chance of getting money on the first call less than 5%. If somebody makes an introduction for me, hey, I invest with Faraz, I think you should invest with him too. My win rate on raising money from those people is probably north of 80%. The only difference between those two scenarios is there was a layer of trust that somebody advocated on my behalf. Hey, I invest with Faraz, you should too. Okay, there's implicit trust there. That is what wins and helps you raise capital and all the things of this business. How often do you uh, intentionally reach out to your, you know, current investors and or people that you just know you have a, a good relationship with to ask for a introduction or for a referral. All I mean, we I do it often. I mean, there's there's a few folks who are my investors who have been with me since I was 22 and I was buying houses, and you know, those people are like family to me at this point. And so there's there's no formality. I'll ask them for introductions and they'll make introductions for me and all of that stuff, but. What I enjoy more is letting sometimes the work speak for itself. What makes me the most happy is somebody on their own volition went and told their friends, like, you should really invest with Faraz, you should invest with Pebble Ridge, and they come and make that introduction. And that happens more and more as you build momentum in the business and you're posting wins and you're actually putting money in these investors' bank accounts. 
uh, that happens more. And that, honestly, that's the most rewarding thing, in my opinion, is I didn't have to ask. They just want to go ahead and told all their friends that, hey, you should do it. And I like that because it tells me we're, we're in the right direction and we're doing the right thing for the investor here. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And, and so you mentioned you started at or around 22 years old. And to be honest, you're still a young guy today, but you're killing it off. I mean, you're doing amazing. What do you see? You know, it sounds really sexy to 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 raise capital, millions of dollars, especially on Twitter. People make everything. Yeah. You know, I read a Nick Huber thread and I'm like, this is real, but it also sounds cool as fuck. I'm like, oh, raise $150 million. Oh, you know, as a young guy, I'm like, oh, I like that number. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm sure there's there's plenty of people out there who see the number is in the money signs and and these interesting breakdowns on Twitter and social media. But like, I, I guess my question is, what do you see young people do wrong? Like when they're trying to dive into this space or what do you what do you think like attracts the wrong type of people to the space of raising capital and then reinvesting that in, you know, a dope product or asset for people like uh, I feel like I'm struggling to ask this question, but I, I hope you're catching oh, it. There's yeah. like a 20 year old out there and he sees your tweet and said, oh, we, we, you know, invested this much capital. And they're like, oh, that sounds sexy. And now they want to go out there and do that. Like, what do you see people doing wrong? Young yeah, people. no, absolutely. So, I mean, look, someone like Dick Huber or someone that's older and has been doing this for a while. They know that they have the ability to raise capital. They're confident and secure in that. So you do not see a lot of desperation coming from them versus somebody that's never done it. It's like, oh my God, I'm about, I'm 20 years. And I I had this big time. I just posted about this recently. I'm 20 years old. I'm about to go have my hands out to millionaires, asking them to give a 20 year old a significant amount of money to go manage for them. Like, am I going to look like a fool? And also like, what if I can't get it done? Um, I don't know that I have it in me. And there's a lot of insecurity and it comes out and I'm using the word desperate and I don't mean it to sound so harsh, but what it looks like is, the people that are on social media that do a phenomenal job of raising capital, like the Nick Hubers of the world, you'll never know. They they never say, you know, hey, come invest in our deal or, hey, we have a phenomenal opportunity. They just come and talk about their book. They just talk about, here's my thoughts about business. Nick Huber actually does a great job of this. He's like, here's what we did wrong. Here's the biggest challenges in our business today. Here's what scares me about my investments today. He is so vulnerable and open about it. The people that are newer, and I was definitely guilty of this, come on. And they're like, we just got this phenomenal deal and we're definitely going to make a million dollars on it. And you should go ahead and get in and this and that. And there's no, like I said, it's so trust-based, right? If you're going on social media and you are just being an advert, you're just a clear advertisement and that's all you are. There is no level of trust established, right? Because we've been trained, you know, as humans, we ignore people that are just blatantly self-promoting and advertising. We take it with a grain of salt and we move on. But something that's genuine and authentic that stands out is what actually builds trust. And trust is the foundation of being able to go raise money. So if you are out there trying to raise capital for the first time, it's hard to train yourself. Do not do not blatantly go out there raising capital. Talk talk about why you think you have something of value. Talk about who you are, what struggles you face, what things concern you. I mean, you're 20 years old. You're not going to fool anyone to think you are some savant that's been doing this for 20. I mean, be own it, right? Own the fact that you are young, you are new, you don't have it all figured out. Talk that kind of book and that genuineness and openness is what is going to build your relationships, not being a blatant advertisement because you're so freaked out about how the hell I'm going to raise money, if that makes sense. It does. It does. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I want to ask, what what are some hard skills you think somebody should go out there and, and develop if they're interested in getting into the same space you're in? Maybe not necessarily specifically self-storage, but just in general, raising capital. Uh, on behalf of investing for investors and managing their money, right? So um, if yeah. somebody's interested in getting in the private equity space or, you know, raising funds in general for other people and investing it, what uh, what hard skills do they need to learn um, that they can go out there and learn on YouTube or or Twitter or, you know, these, these easier access areas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, man, anything you need to know is out there on Google and YouTube these days. Like I said, I learned my whole business from Twitter. Um, so obviously, I mean, if you're in the world of private equity or managing money, there's a certain base life level of like financial acumen you want to have. You want to be able to talk about like what is what is cash flow, what is ROI or what is an annualized ROI or, you know, all these different things, you know, we are going to beat the market. What does that mean to beat the market? So there's a baseline level of financial acumen you want to have. You don't have to be Warren Buffett on this stuff. You just want to be able to speak intelligently to a level where someone would trust that you have an understanding of what's going on. 
Outside of that, like I said, the biggest thing about raising capital, that at least I've switched in my head, is it's, it's not an exercise in who is the smartest person in the room. That's who I'm going to trust with my capital. It's an exercise in who do I trust the most in this room to go and do the right thing. Um, and so when it comes to what are the hard skills you can actually have to be someone who is trustworthy and likable and people want to approach, man, a lot of that is sales, in my opinion. Like, learn how to be someone that sells. And, you know, there's this perception sales is not like used car sales, being pressure, you know, being like a pushy slicked hair back guy or something a lot of what like is in the i don't know what the phrase is modern discussion of how to be a good salesperson is really just about like how are you going to be a good listener how are you going to be someone that understands the psychology of other people there's a book that i really like that changed my whole perspective on sales i was in sales for about six years before i started this business it is called pitch anything by warren clapp i love that book because it's about sales but it's not about like say this and use this tricky phrase it's like here's how the psychology of people works they have this survival instinct in their mind. Outside of that, they have this flight or flight mode in their mind. And then they have this part of their brain that comp like processes complex logic. And then they have the, so how do I understand what parts of the brain are going off when I say certain things? And how do I make sure my message gets across to the right part of the brain at the right time and all of that? And it's, it's understanding people is by far the, the number one skill that you need to have. I'll say this, and I don't mean shade on any woman. I know a lot of people that are very, very successful in the world of private. I talked to one yesterday. I can't lie. This is a crazy story. Talked to a guy yesterday. He's probably raised 20, 30 million dollars for real estate deals. He has it's him and his partner. And we were looking at a deal together that we might work on together. And we're trying to figure out how to you know come up with the value of the property. And I'm like, oh, you just use this cap rate. Cap rate's a real estate term. It's like how you determine it's like a multiple, like, hey, this the property produces this much money. We take a certain multiple of that. That's the value. So I'm like, yeah, apply this cap rate. He's like, what's a cap rate? How do I calculate it? And I was like, that's crazy, man. That's unbelievable. I mean, I didn't say like that. And again, no shade because this guy's this guy's really smart. The point I'm trying to make is his success doesn't come from being the smartest guy in the room or his ability to put together the most world-class. His success is because people like him, people trust him. They have faith that he's going to do the right thing with their money. And he has delivered on that promise time and time again. And that's what wins. And so Yes, go educate yourself on finance and real estate or startups or software. But man, the most transferable skill you can have in this day and age is how to get people to trust you, to like you, to build genuine relationships. And, you know, if you were trying to come up with a keyword to put in YouTube, look up sales, look up psychology. Those are the biggest things. What's one belief you have in your industry or in your field, or let's say that most of your uh, Twitter followers would get on your head about? So if you posted this tweet and it was a belief you have about your industry or about your space, a lot of people might respond in, in, a, in a disagreeing energy. Yeah, it's a great question. Okay, I'll say this one that I know people wouldn't necessarily all like or understand right away. And I'm stealing this. I, I stole this from somebody else, but it's it's somewhat a controversial thing. So the guy said, and this guy has been involved in real estate for probably 15, 20 years. He comes from a family that was involved in real estate. And uh, and they do a similar thing to I do. They raise money from investors and go put it into large apartment complexes and all that kind of stuff. So especially on real estate Twitter, everyone is trying to talk about like how to make sure you have the best deal. How do I buy really quality property and put the right structure to reduce risk, really maximize and juice as much return and profit out of that one deal as possible. And that's what everyone is like obsessed over. Someone made a point that, Hey, at a certain point, if you want to be someone that grows their business, it's not about, it's really about how much money you can raise and how much money you can go and deploy. And not so much about how you can do incrementally better returns with each dollar that you deploy. But a lot of people become so obsessed and rightfully so like, hey, I have a million dollars I've raised to invest. How can I make sure I get a 30% return and not this 28% return? I'm going to spend all my time juicing that extra 2% out of that million dollars. If they want to grow their business, they would be better served saying 28% is just fine. They're going to be just okay. How can I go get another million dollars to deploy? And it should be your focus is building relationships, deploying capital, and do not obsess over squeezing the one or two extra percent out of each and every deal. The point to put into one sentence is being able to raise and deploy more capital is way more important than what you incrementally do with that capital. And a lot of people would say, oh my God, you know, no, it's your job is to do the best job you absolutely can for investors. Absolutely. I'm not saying go do a dog shit job or scam people or all of that. But if you want to grow the business, the name of the game is raise as much money as possible, deploy as much capital as possible in a responsible way. Um, but if you just sit there and you spend all your time going about how am I get that, get that extra one or 2%, I promise you, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you're trying to grow your business. Mm. And I love that you said in a responsible way, because what I heard at the beginning, like when you were starting to share that, it was just yeah. like, all right, how, you know, whoever can get 
access to a lot of capital as quick as possible and then is willing to take risk like higher risk than others but then you add it at the end you're like yeah and responsibly do so with the yeah. capital because it's like you can't be out here fucking off money like we see a lot of people do in the people doing crypto that, yeah. and nft space and shit like yeah. that so yeah. even in no hate estate, to them but you know <laughs> now, even in real estate there are people who's built their business wrongfully so around we just want to get as much money out the door as possible i could care less what it goes into mm. and we will even if it's going into some dog shit that's super risky we'll spin it to make it look decent and they run mm. their business like that and that's absolutely not okay in my opinion you're still being responsible. You're still delivering on what you said you're going to do to the investor. The point I'm trying to make is don't make try to make every single thing does not have to be hit out of the park. You can hit plenty of doubles, triples for your investors. And they'll be just as happy and spend the rest of the time worrying about how to grow the investor base. You obsess trying to make every single swing a home run. Athletes don't do that. Baseball players don't swing for a home run on every single deal, right? They're going to have a pretty bad batting average. They're not going to be the best player they can do in that, right? So pick and choose where you want to spend your time, but it still has to be responsible. You can't just throw money into whatever. And there are people doing that. And it's really, really unfortunate. It gives our industry a really bad name. I have a few final questions for you uh, about the business. So um, number one, in your guys' space, you're not getting like cash back a day, like a month later. You know what I'm saying? It's very much a, a, a patient process for both for the investors and for you. And I assume for you guys, you probably put in a little bit of capital as well to show, you know, some skin in the game. So how do you remain patient or how do you like remain excited every day? <laughs> from, uh, a, from a monetary point of view like when you know that this money may not come back to you in, uh, for like you know probably seven to ten yeah no it's a good question i was joking about that with some of the other day i'm like every now and then i have to go open the calculator on my iphone and just like in three years when we sell a property this much how much am i going to make and i have to look at the number and be get excited again and getting all right all right i'm good i'm good because you're right it absolutely requires a lot of patience it is not a get rich quick game i think most great things in life are not get rich quick uh, and not get rich easy um, you know, without the time, patience and energy put in, it's just not as rewarding. So in the meantime, you have to either, you have to have both. You have to have a genuine enjoyment of what you do. You can't hate this business and do it just for the money. You know what I mean? Um, like I have a lot of doctor friends that say the same thing. Cause you got to go to med school and then residency. It's like, dude, if you do this just for the money and you hate being medicine, like you're not going to last, you're going to burn out and quit. You have to have some level of genuine enjoyment and passion for this field of medicine and, and helping human health and all of that. And I believe it's the same thing here. If you do it just purely for money, and you don't actually enjoy this stuff, you're going to hate it. So the enjoyment helps a lot because I honestly love what I do. I have, I don't feel like I've worked in a year. Like it doesn't feel like work to me. If not that you got to love the people you work with, you, you know, feed off of their energy. Sometimes just there's a social bond that gets you motivated. Like I want to come to work because I want my team to see that. And I want to put in this work because I want them to see I have their back and they have my back. And that's what keeps you going more than anything. Like the human social relationship aspect of it. Um, and then, of course, you know, you still want to build your business so that you can you can or set yourself up so that you're not hurting for money. man. if you if you have nothing and you leave and you start a real estate business, I'd encourage you to not do that because you're going to be hurting for money. You're going to be stressed, rightfully so. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if you are somewhat financial security to make it a couple of years without earning a decent bit of money, knowing that there's a big reward at the end of it and you genuinely love it, you're going to be just fine. And with that same question, like, yeah, how how do you make money on them on a, like, you know monthly basis <laughs> to be able to pay for your, your your new kid and your family like in that space for people who don't understand the space and fees and things of that nature would you mind uh sharing how you're able to uh live <laughs> yeah absolutely so the way uh, a lot of these real estate private equity companies work including ours is we make money in two ways one is you know hey when we if we sell this property or this property just hits it out of the park you know, first X amount of dollars go to the investors, but then everything after a certain threshold, hey, now the investors made 8% or 9% for the year. Everything above that, we now we start to take a share in the profits. So it's like a performance bonus. Hey, the better you make this deal, the more money I also get to make. And so that, the reason that's powerful is it keeps the incentives aligned. If I want to make a ton of money, I got to make my investors a ton of money first. And that's really powerful. But a lot of times, like you said, that comes towards the end of the deal. That comes when we're getting ready to sell and we're going to have a boatload of cash and a big windfall coming from the sale. So we don't touch a lot of that. In the meantime, how do we cover payroll? How do we invest in the things to make sure that we're actually able to properly manage these investments is what fees are charged for. So fees is like, hey, 
we will get paid on how well this investment performs. But in the meantime, we've actually already done a lot of work for you, Mr. and Mrs. Investor. Like we found the deal, we've underwritten a deal, we've done due diligence, we're managing it, we're creating financial reports, we're quarterly reporting to you, we're making ourselves available for questions and all of that costs money. We're doing this work for you. And we're gonna charge a fee for that work that we've done because as a result of that work, we've given you the opportunity to totally passively hands-off invest in phenomenal real estate opportunity. And that is something that you should be willing to, that's a, there's a slight premium on getting able to sit back and do nothing and collect checks from phenomenal real estate deals. And we collect a fee for that service. And the point of that fee is exactly what I said, you know, to be able to cover payroll, to cover expenses, to invest in the things that make us the best money managers that we can possibly be. Those are the two ways we make money, but I'll leave this comment. I have not touched a dollar of our fees or I have not taken a dollar out of this business since we started. And this is a lot of people ask me all the time, you know, Froz, you left your job at Google, man. Like, oh, I'm 24. I want to leave my job too. I really want to start my own thing. So the question I ask everybody, if you didn't touch a dollar for the next 18 months, what happens? Can you live with that scenario or no? If the answer is no, stay at your job, keep your expenses very, very low, save up as much as possible till you get to that point. You know, and I know it's, it's a position of privilege to be able to say that because it's not the easiest thing for anyone to get to do that. But get to that point where you're not relying on the business to cover your bills for the first couple of years so that you can actually invest in any money you make and actually go to growing that business. So you can get to where you're supposed to be 10 times faster, you know, and then once you get to that point and now the real money starts coming in, it'll all have been worth it. That's my two cents on the topic. I love it. I love it. Faraz, you've shared a lot of value today. You've also updated us on how the business is going and shared a lot of insight I really do appreciate it. And um, I hope to do this again in 2024 and hopefully in February again, because I like doing it on the year mark. That's pretty yeah. dope in my head. So I really enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. The the last thing I want to ask you is what is one piece of advice you want to leave the audience with in any space? It can be about private equity. It can be about uh, real estate. It can be about life. It can be about parenting. I don't care what you choose, but one piece of advice or insight you want to leave with the audience before we sign out today. When put your mind to it and get it done, man, whatever you think. I mean, man, I, I never thought in a million years, even two years ago, I didn't think I could be someone that owns a business and operates a business and has nine employees. I didn't think that was something that was meant for me. You know what I mean? It's not even something that crossed my mind. Uh, like there is a whole, like anything you can imagine, you can probably make it happen for some people, you know, that are in certain positions of privilege. It's easier for some people. It's way, way harder. Definitely recognizing that. But man, don't don't put limitations on, on what you think you can accomplish. Life is a lot more fun when you take those away. Um, everyone in here, everyone has certain gifts, skills, traits. Nobody is born and destined to be a failure. That everyone has something that can make them incredibly successful and happy. Find that thing, lean into it, take the limitations off your mind, and go have a freaking good time and enjoy this life. You know? Where can people find you? How can they support you? You can find me on Twitter, Faraz Himani. You can search my name, H-E-M-A-N-I. You can find me on LinkedIn. Those are the two platforms I'm the most active on. You might see me on TikTok and Instagram pretty soon, but for right now, find me on Twitter, find me on LinkedIn. You can DM me, message me. Doesn't have to be for investing. You're just a young person. You want to chop it up about entrepreneurship or real estate. Those are my favorite conversations. So reach out to me. I enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the show.